Hola, how was your childhood? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> straight to the point. Straight to the point, you know? You know what, Amara? I actually feel like my childhood was terrible. That's not how I remembered it. I think it's entirely related to having you as my brother. <laughs> wow, I think I made your childhood better. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but actually, we wanted to talk today about all the things childhood, psychology, trauma, my personal favorite, the Enneagram. Amara has his thoughts on the Enneagram. But to do that, we actually have my wonderful friend and also a psychotherapist and someone who's just great to talk about all these things with us and take this deep dive into this world. So Sam, thank you for joining us. Super excited to be with you guys. Welcome to Ramblings. Yeah. Introduce yourself. My name is Samantha. I work as a psychotherapist. I currently work at an addictions agency for York Region in Ontario and primarily work with an adult population. Occasionally see families and couples and things like that. And I've also worked with youth as well prior to working primarily with adults. Cool. What, I guess, is your license and your qualification? What are you under? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because I feel like so often people are like, what is a psychotherapist? Like, <laughs> right. How is it different than a psychologist, a psychiatrist? But for me, I'm under a college called the College of Registered Psychotherapy. I would say it's a newer college, specifically in Ontario at least, that regulates the practice of psychotherapy. So that can look like different kinds of therapy, music therapy, talk therapy, which I primarily practice in. For me, at least my background, I did undergrad in psychology, which makes sense. And then <laughs> yeah. I did my master's at a school called Tyndale, did a master's of divinity, but focused in clinical counseling. So training in different kinds of therapies to be able to practice. The reason why we wanted to have this discussion today is a few weeks ago, me and Ola were talking about Shane Dawson, and there was a video that was released about him by Blair White, another YouTuber and also a friend of his. And there was something interesting she said about the whole situation. And he had apparently experienced a lot of trauma in his childhood. And she believes that just over his YouTube career, a lot of the problematic things he's done is because he hasn't really addressed any of the trauma that has happened to him. It got me kind of thinking, what exactly are the effects of childhood trauma and not really addressing that? Not just for the extreme cases, even just some of the more minor or subtle things that maybe affect us from our childhood that we don't really think about. Yeah, I, I think also when we had that conversation, one of the key things you asked, like, how do we end that cycle? Like, what does ending the cycle of abuse look like? And I think you were asking that on an individual and a societal level. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, you know, why not have someone come on who lives this life and practices in this field? Both of you obviously with psychology backgrounds, but Sam more so professionally practicing in this space and just really wanting to discuss all of it. Trauma, childhood trauma, all those kinds of things and what it looks like to actually have healthier people grow up and function in society. People who start off as children. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I think even hearing that story, I haven't heard about that. I've heard about stuff that's happened on YouTube with Shane Dawson and things. But I think even hearing that idea of like the cycle of abuse, I think of even the idea of like generational trauma mm -hmm. and the reality of that, that trauma passes along through generations because so often those things are learned. We learn those things from the environments that we grow up in. And I think a really big part of it too is it becomes so normalized to a certain extent because that's what we know 
especially when you're young. Right. You don't really know anything different than that. So even when you're older, you obviously start to see that maybe the way you grew up was not as kind of normalized as other people. But at the same time, you've lived this way for so long that it's hard, I think, to break out of that cycle unless you have the right supports and things like that as well. Do you think that, you know, hurt people hurt people? Like mm. that kind of cyclic like cyclical cycle yeah do you think that kind of relates to what you're saying about intergenerational trauma yeah i actually do and when i hear that phrase hurt people hurt people mm-hmm. i totally do because i think at the end of the day everybody's hurt in some kind of way and one thing we talk often about in therapy is there's almost like two kinds of trauma there's like big t trauma and then there's like little t trauma so big t trauma often is the kind of trauma that everybody would find traumatic. So that can be anything like emotional, sexual abuse that somebody has gone through, whether it's one incident or long-term incidents. And then there's little T trauma that people just experience. So it can be things like when you've gone through a breakup, it is really traumatic to go through a breakup, but people might not find it traumatic. That's quite subjective to the individual. So I think oftentimes too, there's hurt there. There's hurt from the big T that you experience and there's hurt from the different traumas that people experience all through their lifetime as well, you know? An interesting way to phrase it, big T and little T. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Statistically, I believe there is a lot of evidence that backs up the idea that people who often are abused when they're younger are more often likely to become abusers Mm. later on in their lives. I guess trauma would be, that's subjective, but abuse is, I don't know, something that you actually have control over. And I think actually when we, I mean, even when I think about trauma, like trauma in and of itself is like such a big word. There's so much there because you know you can people can joke about like oh my gosh I can't believe you dropped your phone that's so traumatic or your phone broke (laughs) right you know and I think sometimes it can be really helpful to be really aware of those words and how you use it Mm. because I think it's something that's thrown around so much that when somebody has actually experienced significant trauma like let's say cycles of abuse that have happened for years and someone's like oh my gosh your phone dropped (laughs) which for a lot of people that could be like a little t trauma because they're attached to their phone. So that's subjective to their own experience, you know? But obviously it's not the same as somebody who's gone through intense trauma like that. I mean, if you can't afford to replace your phone, that could be a terrible experience for you, but. Yeah, actually going with that example, it's like if your phone is your connection to like all these things and you've lost it, that's really disturbing for somebody. Mm. So I actually understand that, but I think that definition is so big for trauma. It's also interesting because I think that's also applicable to other things when we talk about mental health. Like when people talk about anxiety or depression or OCD or PTSD, Mm. I do often hear those words used quite frequently. And sometimes I do in those moments go, "Mm, like, are you sure you want to use that word? Mm, So true. I think a lot of people lack an understanding of some of the actual definitions of some of these words which is why people will throw around things like PTSD or they'll say like they're OCD or, you know, just a wide variety of things that they don't really understand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like what you were explaining, Sam, to me is the difference between childhood trauma versus like childhood wounds and this kind mm. of idea that sometimes the things that happen to us or perhaps the way we grow up and how we perceive those things is different than what was actually happening. And that doesn't invalidate our experience, but that just mm. may mean it isn't perhaps you know, like a big T trauma versus like a little T trauma or something that impacted us in a way that we aren't self-aware enough to realize because it wasn't this big grandiose thing, yet it does have an impact on us. And that's only seen 
through our behaviors and our actions later on in life in the big things and in the little things. I always hear this phrase of people parent based off of how they were parented, whether it's they do things that their parents did or they avoid things that their parents did because they didn't like those things being done to them. It's this notion of we've only been able to apply what we've learned or use the tools that we were given. And so that's where we're working off of. And I think ultimately part of what it means to address trauma or even be a healthier individual is to have that level of self-awareness or to Mm. get those tools to be more self-aware so that whether it is a trauma or a childhood wound or something in that spectrum, we're able to deal with it and not project. I think so often too, trauma isn't talked about. I think that's a really big part of it. So even as you talk about like significant trauma that's happened or wounds, oftentimes those things aren't communicated or discussed in families when you grow up, whether that's with your parents or your siblings or extended family or whatever. And I think that also adds to a certain extent to the wounds that somebody might have because in a way when they're not addressed, then it's like, are these experiences real or are these experiences valid to me and that's i think for me at least that's the part of therapy that i find very powerful in having the opportunity to recognize your own voice learn your own voice and be able to state those things that maybe for so long in your life that you haven't really been able to do as well i think of that phrase shoving things under the rug Mm -hmm. and how easy it is to do that and i think a part of why people do that too is because not just for the person who's experiencing the trauma but for the people around them if this came up, this would shake them too because they might not know how to respond to it as well. Not that that justifies their actions Mm. and not knowing how to do that, but they might not know how to respond to it too. So recognizing that piece there. Mm. I wanted to know, are there any things that you would say are signs that maybe people are holding on to some of their trauma or are there any things that maybe an individual might not notice about themselves, but you may be able to see externally that would lead you to believe that they're holding on to some kind of trauma? Yeah. Oh, that's actually a really good question. So like that idea of are there signs that somebody might be holding on to trauma? Or not necessarily signs, but like if let's say like I want to go back and examine my childhood, maybe I might not be perceptive of the things that have happened to me or the experiences that I've gone through that have contributed to just the way I am now, right? Mm-hmm. So how does the average person, for example, like, okay, um, this person physically assaulted me when I was a child. Like that's something concrete. It's easy to see how that could affect you, but mm. sometimes it might it not it might not be as concrete. It might be more subtle. So are there any things that maybe, you know, just like the general person might not be aware about, but maybe after some introspection, they may be able to find out about themselves. Yeah, because I agree. Obviously there's like people it's like more obvious that it's like, oh you've definitely been through something. Whereas yeah. maybe people who haven't It's kind of like, oh, like, how can you tell? I think one thing I've learned as I've continued to work and more recently, because I did a training last year that really opened up my eyes to the impact of our bodies as well and how our body also holds trauma. And I think this does speak a little bit more to like more significant trauma. So I'll speak to that first. But I think oftentimes what happens to our body is our body somatically holds trauma in a way that like our bodies respond to stress differently than when we're not stressed. So for example, when we're in a traumatic situation, our body automatically goes into survival mode. And you know, we talk about that idea of fight, flight, or freeze. Our body in those moments, whatever we're going through, is just basically helping us and trying to get us to survive. So whether it's a one-time incident or like multiple incidents, our body learns that. And what happens in the future 
when we're adults, let's say, if this is an incident that's happened when we're young, what happens in the future is if we're in a situation that brings up similar kind of experiences or emotions, our body might automatically go back to those places, even if the threat is not even close to the same, if that makes sense. So we can kind of like examine how we are feeling physically and that can kind of give us an indication. Yeah, I definitely would say for me, at least in the work that I do, I think oftentimes we get people to just be more aware of their physical sensations. I almost think of our body as like signs. When our bodies start to respond, they're like the first kind of signs to let you know, hey, something is going on before maybe your brain starts thinking, before you start to even act. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we're quite disconnected from our bodies, actually. We might actually not know what's going on until somebody checks in with you and says, hey, what's actually happening? Let's slow it down. And what are you noticing right now about your body? One of the clients that I remember seeing, there's this girl that I worked with very briefly when I was doing my internship. When I would talk to her, she seemed like like kind of just like normal conversation. But I remember when I went to get her in the waiting room, she was just sitting there. She looked totally normal. But the moment I called her name, she was like very dissociated. So dissociated is a word we use often when people are just disconnected from what's happening. And often when you're in a traumatic situation, you might need to dissociate because that's what feels safer so that you don't have to stay present in the situation. And I remember the moment I called her name, she just jumped, totally startled. It almost seemed like she didn't know where she was because there was this like disconnect from like how her body was feeling and what was actually going on for her. And I think those are signs because at the time I was like, what's going on? Why is she so surprised? But the more I talked to her, I was like, something's happened um, that she doesn't feel safe in her body. And that's why she's always like aware and maybe unsure of what's around her or her surroundings in that sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Weirdly enough, that's a good segue into the Enneagram. <laughs> um, oh, God. Because <laughs> Ola's dying to talk about that. That's what she's been waiting for. No, but when Amara brought up, like what I heard from what you said was, is there a way that someone who maybe hasn't experienced a big T trauma or hasn't experienced something overtly traumatic can gain a level of self-awareness or have some sort of indicators of how they've experienced things that have impacted them and have shaped who they are? Um and the Enneagram is like kind of amazing for that. <laughs> and and not actually because it'll say, you know, you experienced this specific thing. Um, but I think it's just such an incredible tool for self-awareness and for empathy towards other people. I think before we go further, you should kind of explain what the Enneagram is. Yeah, I, I definitely will. So I was first introduced to the Enneagram about three years ago. I listened to this artist. He makes music under the moniker Sleeping At Last. But his name is Ryan O'Neill. And I've been a fan of his since, I don't know, like 10 years ago. But basically, he started releasing music that was titled after different numbers. He was releasing songs called like one, two, three. And I was like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And I know that he is such an intentional artist. But when I was searching up the inspiration behind the song titles and what was going on, he basically explained that the songs were motivated and were inspired by the Enneagram. And then later on, he did a podcast with a popular um, author who's well-versed in the Enneagram sphere and has written a book that I love and I've recommended. 
And they do this deep dive into the Enneagram, providing more introspection, I think, to to what it is. And I just want to preface by saying, like, I'm still learning and I've learned a lot, but I do believe that it's a lifelong process. I will say the Enneagram was first invented in the 1900s, and it was kind of a model for the human psyche. It was used to understand people through the nine interconnected personality types, but has since been expounded on by more modern thinkers. Today, however, it's often used used as a personality typology, but it's actually a lot more. So I think it's more of like a dynamic system that can help us examine how we relate to others, ourselves, and the world. There's an article called how does the Enneagram work and how is it useful? And I'll actually link it in the show notes because it's so good. But basically, one of the things that it says is like, the Enneagram is a language, not a personality quiz. And so if you're interested in diving into it, the best way is to approach it as like something more of like a longer journey and not something to give you these like simple, basic answers about yourself. And the difference between the Enneagram and other kind of behavioral systems and personality typing is basically like, other personality kind of models or whatever look at the what and the how of of what you do where the Enneagram more so looks at your motivations the why and like you know just your reasons for engaging in the world in your own unique way of being I think that's a really accurate way of describing like it is just more I think of a language and it's been a really helpful language for me to use with people and talking about so many different things like I think it's just a really insightful tool the Enneagram Institute which is a site that dives a lot deeper into everything and even has like a testing center and all that kind of stuff um but there's this quote which basically says that like it is like one of the most powerful insightful tools for understanding ourselves and other people it's it's meant to kind of help you look at more of the objective realities of who you are and just being a tool for like a path to self-knowledge, showing you what a healthy version versus like an unhealthy version of yourself may look like, how we respond to stress, our coping mechanisms, those things are referred to as the integration and disintegration. But the thing that I want to stress is just like not over identifying with a single type or like this caricature. So like a lot of times people will be like, oh, like I'm like the achiever or I'm like the helper. (laughs) Um, And I actually specifically don't use that language. Like I'll say like I'm dominant type three, wing two or whatever. I don't like this notion of you're this and all that kind of stuff. And I've explained it to people as you are not who you are because you're a type two. You are who you are and therefore you're a type two, if that makes Mm. sense. Like it's, you are just who you are and there's just kind of a language to describe you as opposed to I'm this and therefore I do all these things. But who's to say this language isn't wrong? I just think it's a really cool tool. I I really actually don't see it as more than that. It's just a self-revelatory tool. And it's something that's actually really helped me understand me, but also so many other people around me, people who've genuinely been like, I feel misunderstood. Mm. And then, you know, having them kind of come to the Enneagram and be like, this is really helpful because I feel so misunderstood. This is a cool way to kind of express what I feel like I I struggle to say. More than that, I feel like I'm able to look at people with more nuance and acknowledge like their complexities and intricacies as opposed to being like, just kind of judgy. When someone's able to say like, this is kind of one of my tendencies or this is how I respond to stress or this is how I respond to this or that or the other thing, I'm able to be like, okay, that makes so much more sense. Like, I feel like I understand you versus I'm seeing this external action and I'm like, 
you're just a crappy person. Mm. <laughs> it's acknowledging that there's more to it. And I think the Enneagram is more so describing that or categorizing it. And so they're not who they are again because of that typology. But it's like by virtue of knowing, okay, this is kind of where I fall into on this spectrum of types this is kind of how I respond to things I think you can then be like okay well why do I do that and then also look at specific instances in your own life that would give you the keys to that kind of like self-revelation if that makes sense Mm. dude sound like you work for the Enneagram (laughs) she probably they probably pay her I mean I feel like I should I feel like I need a job at the Enneagram I think you should work for them (laughs) I actually really like the point around that it's like a language Mm. as opposed to something that defines you. I think that's something I'm always weary about with personality tests. There's a personality test called the Myers-Briggs. I don't yes. know if you guys... Yeah. Familiar. I know that one. Yeah, that one obviously is not as detailed as the Enneagram in a sense, but it's quite researched and used a lot in psychology. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes I think with personality tests, can be really really helpful to look at it and be like uh, give you more insight into who you are and i love that piece around that it can also give you insight into other people and how they are as well because i remember even having conversations with ola being like yeah like i actually understand this person more because they're this type yeah not and and i think the really important part of it is not to define somebody right and and just hold tight to it i think that's the dangerous part of what personality things can do yeah because it can definitely do that once you read through a type especially through an enneagram because it is so detailed yeah you can read that and be like oh man i'm like this but at the same time like not to just hold to those because people people change and you can take those and you can reflect on them for yourself and i think one of the cool things you can do is like you can also talk to people and be like, hey, like, what do you think about this for me? Trusted people that, that you can be vulnerable with. Because it can be quite vulnerable to be like, hey, this is what it says about me. What do you think, too? Yes. And I think that's also why I've kind of steered clear of, like, forcing people into the world of the Enneagram. Like, I think you kind of have to find it on your own. And, yeah. Seems kind of like a cult to me. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are so different. I love it. Yeah. Oh, Amara, Amara's very anti-Enneagram. Very. I, I feel Why that. are you so anti-Enneagram, Amara? Well, okay. Here's my thing. It's not necessarily the Enneagram itself. Because at the end of the day, it is just a personality test. There are multiple different personality tests and you know they can all be made in different ways but overall they're still doing the same thing this is just a different variation my issue is when people use this test and then based on that they try to tell you okay you have this personality type and it was because this this and this happened to you in your life whereas you know your average personality test it's more so just to tell you what your traits are you know you are high on this trait low on this trait but the enneagram goes much more than that it's like okay you're on high you're higher on this trait because these five things happened in your childhood or maybe the test itself doesn't say that but a lot of people who use the enneagram they will make those assumptions or they will use the enneagram to kind of say okay it must have been because these things happened in your life and to me that i can't get behind it's one thing to say you have a personality type. It's a completely different thing to say you are a certain way or you have a certain personality trait because X, Y, and Z happened in your life. I'd say this is different between like inductive and deductive reasoning. Like one, you're making an inference. You're basically saying this happened or you're like this, so these things must have happened to you. Whereas it's, you're not doing the reverse. You're not saying these things happened to you. And okay, now I'm going to come to the conclusion that this is why you're like that. It's like you're working in reverse. I feel like 
you have that view because you heard a specific person use the Enneagram in that way. I'm fine with Enneagram itself. I don't like how people use it. Your point is that you don't like how people have used it. And I'm saying you've only experienced people using it in small and specific instances. Like, I don't think you've really gone beyond to be like, how do people use the Enneagram? I think if you had done that work, you'd have a more balanced perspective. So tell me, how else have people used the Enneagram? Great question. <laughs> other than other than to kind of tell people what they experienced in their life that made them this way. I don't think I've actually heard anyone tell me that the Enneagram is like, this is what you've experienced in your life and this is what you are. That's how you introduced it to me all those years ago. <laughs> well, okay, I played you a part of a podcast and that's how the guy was talking about it. But I will say that in my own research, if you will, most, if not everyone else, doesn't speak about the Enneagram in that way. And also, even when he was talking, like he was saying, you may have, like these may be things that have happened to you. Not like conclusively, <laughs> your dog bit you and now you're a type eight, like that he never said that. It's more so like giving people, giving people a benchmarker to be like, okay, if these things have happened to you, maybe this can be a helpful way to see that you may be in this way. You know what it sounds a lot like? <laughs> What? People on like their astrological signs because think about it this way, you're given an astrological sign and people say, okay, it means this, 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 and this about you. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they're very common things that really apply to anyone. Everyone. Right. And I'm like, why is the Enneagram any different? Why isn't it that these things that they're applying to these different types, why are they not just common things that apply to a lot of people? Someone can see these things like, oh, the Enneagram says, you know, I'm a type one or whatever, and type ones have these traits or these things about them. Maybe it's a general thing that applies to most people at like on some varying degree. Someone can see them like, oh, you know what? This is this make this makes sense. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm a type one and you know, I guess all these things are saying about me is true. But is it really true? Or because you know about it and you're told Like self fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. It's like you're told something in advance. And it makes sense because you heard it already. When it comes to Enneagram, when someone describes one of the types to you, you may fit some of those personality traits on some varying level. And when someone does it to you in advance, you're hearing these things and then in your mind, you're like, oh, like, do I match up with these? I think the big problem I have with this confirmation bias, maybe if someone just for randomly asks you just about certain traits or whatever, maybe your response will be different. There wouldn't be that confirmation bias. To me, that's very similar to people in their astrological signs. It's just confirmation bias. You tell someone, oh, you know, you were born at this time of the year. It means, you know, you are likely to have these certain traits. And then you're looking at these lists like, oh, like I do do some of these things to a varying degree. Personally, to me, they seem very similar. Or at least not the test itself, but just in the way people use it. That's fair. I've seen it used in different ways and I, I think that there's part of it that people do use it in that way. I personally have experienced many ways that people do not use it in the way that you describe and I think for me the difference, I mean, I don't like astrological signs for many reasons, I just don't subscribe to that. With astrological signs, it's not just telling you how you are, it's telling you like how Monday the 23rd is going to be in 1998. <laughs> like it's so, it's so bizarre. It's like today you will find happiness in like skincare like it's just it's just it's so i think it's more arbitrary i don't know i think it's a sliding scale maybe the enneagram is not like at a 10 but like it's not at a zero it's probably like a five <laughs> or a seven again some people do the testing some people just read the types and they're like identify most with this one so it's them making that identification versus someone being like you're this type but the point 
of it too is you ultimately know yourself. And that's the point I'm trying to end on with the Enneagram is like really and truly people have, you know, a brain and their own thoughts. And so I think at the end of the day, like if you did the Enneagram and you were like, you scored for a type two and you were like, none of these things apply to me, you would know that. I've looked at the other types before I did the test and I was like, some of these things like I just really don't identify with them at all. Some of them more so I do, which lines up also with like, then I test and I'm like, oh, okay, like this kind of makes sense. But there are things that are a part of certain categories like on the Enneagram Institute that I'm like, I don't think this applies to me. And it may apply to somebody else who's a type three, even if it doesn't apply to me directly. At the end of the day, I think it's less about reading so much into it to tell you these deep things about your life and more so saying, hey, like this could be a cool tool for self-awareness should you use it properly. And that's the key, right? Like if your issue is how people are using it, I think that people need to just use it properly. And that's also why it's not meant to just be, you know, a short segment on a podcast, really, or like whatever. Like most people will read books and they'll do more research on it. I think there's actually a part of the two of you that do agree more than you think. Because even when you talk about what the purpose of the tool is, mm. regardless of if it's the Enneagram or not, that I think it can be quite harmful if somebody does ascribe to being like, I am for sure this type, this defines me completely. That That's always yeah. harmful in any kind of way. And I feel like that's what Amara is saying. Like if, if somebody is like, oh, like this is what it's telling me. So when you're going out and about, you're like, oh yeah, this is true because I read this the other day when I did that test and I'm a type two or whatever. That can be really harmful because then there's a part of that where you're not really thinking for yourself. You're not right. actually developing those things for yourself or even potentially questioning those things of being like, am I this? And yeah. even if I am this, how come I'm like this? Not just because a piece of paper or like a study tells me, even if there's research backed into it as well. Yes. That's actually, I think my key takeaway is Enneagram or not Enneagram. I think that in some way, shape or form, it would be helpful to live in a society where we just looked more at the whys. Because I, I do have friends and I know people who have had, I think, big T traumas happen to them. And then that was never addressed in their life, in their families, and then being a friend, seeing them at a more adult stage of life, seeing how those things manifested was really interesting, but also really harmful and caused a lot of pain in many different ways. And so I think that ideally it'd be nice to live in a society where it was more normal for people to do more of that self-awareness and introspective work. There's a deep value to understanding yourself, but there's also a deep value to understanding others and just being empathetic before we're judgy and we just you know make these categorizations but just saying hey maybe I can understand you a little bit more and just I don't know being more open to that and that's a good segue into what I was going to ask you about misconceptions what would you say are any misconceptions you've encountered or you see often when it comes to things like mental health and trauma PTSD and specifically in your work with addiction mm -hmm. there's this quote that I love and I I think a lot of people have heard about it, but I'm such a fan of it. And it speaks exactly to what you were talking about. It says, you know, often we're listening to respond instead of listening to understand. Boom. And that quote, every time I hear it, I'm like, oof, it, it's such a challenge for me, even in the work that I do. You know, obviously I listen a lot in my work. I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, but sadly, I'm sure there are people who are like, hey, I'm ready to tell you what to do. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, but... I think so often when we're coming into a space with somebody and all we're ready to do is, I know what I'm going to say back to you. 
That's not helpful at all. And there's so much power in understanding where somebody has come from, even if you do not agree with maybe their stance or, you know, things that they've done. That's okay. I think there's power in understanding, you know. I think a big word that comes up for me when we talk about misconceptions for any of these things, like mental health, substance use, addiction, is like this idea of stigma. I think there's a lot of stigma, obviously, and that's something, at least in the last couple of years, that our society is trying to break down, which is incredible. But I think often it starts with really understanding what all these different things are, like mental health, depression, anxiety. I can speak more to addiction because I obviously work with that population, but how often when you see somebody who has like a problem, you're already attributing to them like, oh, there must be like this. So like almost that judgment, you know? And I think that's where that piece of taking the time to really understand where they're coming from makes a huge difference. When you get the chance to really hear somebody's story, there's always a reason why people are the way that they are. Even if they might not be aware of it themselves, there's always a reason, I I believe at least. So it's really taking the time to walk with people and listen to try to understand. This is a side note question, but just as a psychotherapist, I always wonder, when I hear stories about therapy and counseling, sometimes I hear people explaining their experiences and talking about the direct advice that they've been given and just therapist saying things and I'm like what how do you walk that line between actual- oh my gosh this is such a, this is such a good question yeah because- like how, is this advice that should be given like should you Ugh. really be how do you know like what's the role of a therapist yeah so one thing we talk about often in therapy at least when we're training is also recognizing the power dynamics there's definitely power dynamics obviously in a therapy session right or like in a therapy relationship yeah there's that building of trust but somebody has more power than somebody else that's very clear and i think that's something the therapist has to be aware of so i think a really big part of that is the therapist has to be aware and has to have their own accountability so that includes like having their own supports personally but also professionally there's this term that we use called countertransference. It's this idea of if somebody's bringing up a story and I'm like getting really like triggered by it, then that's like something that's coming up for me. That's like they're sharing their own stuff, but my own stuff is coming up too. And that's something a therapist has to be aware of, not to be like, oh my gosh, like, wait a second. (laughs) Let me bring into the room what I'm feeling. Of course you can't do that. Right. But in that sense, I think there definitely is a fine line between what you share with the client Mm -hmm. um, and also what you tell a client. I know that at least in the work I do, I think this will be different depending on the therapist you talk to. Right. But often, you know, I tell clients, we're not here to tell you what to do. I think there's a lot of power in helping clients be able to get to that point themselves so like even if in my mind i'm like okay you need to stop drinking that's clear (laughs) they know that you know like i don't have to tell them that every single time i see them a part of what the journey is is getting them to a place where they're like you know what i actually really need to stop doing this as opposed to everybody around them including their therapist being like hey stop (laughs) you know those are things often people know already and i think when you're coming from a place where you are telling people what to do you're not actually helping them figure it out for themselves you're just telling them and i think even in personal experiences that's not helpful to just be told (laughs) to do something yeah wow yeah very interesting way to put it yeah i was gonna say too i think one thing that's really interesting oftentimes i talk to my colleagues and i say you know there's so much power and like so much value in therapy i totally believe that obviously But at the same time, I think in a therapy room, so much can happen that people don't know about and not necessarily saying that bad things happen. But I think at the same time, if somebody isn't trained well or if they don't have the right supports, 
as a clinician, that can be really harmful because you don't actually know what's happening in that room. So you have to make sure you're aware of yourself and you're aware of just where the client's at, having the right supports around you, knowing your own limitations as well. Those are all really important things for a therapist, I would say. I find it interesting that you bring up the limitations that um, a therapist may have. And I think it's important for people to realize that therapists may have those limitations. And sometimes you do have to look around and find the right therapist for you Mm. because based on those limitations, therapists that you talk to may not be able to help you. Maybe they don't have a certain like cultural understanding or uh, religious understanding of, you know, just things that may be important to your life. And often because they don't have the understanding, they may not be able to fully help you or fully understand everything going on with you. So I think that's another important thing that people need to realize. Sometimes you need to find someone who actually has the ability to help you. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Actually, I was going to say it reminds me when I first did my interview to get into school at Tyndale, the director or whoever at the time interviewed me and he was asking why I want to get into this field and things like that. And he asked me, oh, like if you worked with I think he actually used like the addictions population. He said, oh, if you work with the addictions population, does that mean that you have to have gone through that yourself to be able to work with them? And I was like, oh no, this is a trick question. I'm not going to get into the program. (laughs) But it did make me think, because obviously there is that piece as well of you don't necessarily need the life experience to be able to support people. I think sometimes people obviously do feel more comfortable with that and to each his own in that way. But I think more importantly, I always tell people that at the end of the day, when you go to therapy, you're building a relationship with somebody. And the therapeutic relationship that you build is the most important part of the work that you do. And I think even in research that's done, there's a lot of importance in the skill that you bring and the therapy that you use. But if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel comfortable with the person you're sitting across, it'll be hard to do work because you're sitting with somebody that you know, you might be sharing things with that nobody else in your life will know. So yeah, yeah, I always tell people, take the time to find, like shop around, that's okay. And that's your right to do, you know? And it's your right to say, no, you know, this isn't working out. Because why would you want to sit with somebody and be like, ugh, I don't actually really trust them, but now I'm here (laughs) and I have to tell them stuff (laughs) kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Right, at the end of the day, therapists are still human beings. And (sighs) we're so human. (laughs) Yeah. And they still like... (laughs) They can still have the same biases that, you know, just everybody has. So Mm. there are a lot of people who have bad experiences with therapy because of some implicit bias that maybe the therapist has. You may think that they're all the same, but you will find a variety of people who think differently. So I think it is important to kind of shop around sometimes. Yeah, I was actually going to share an example that I came across recently in terms of for me to be reminded of my own humanness. I, I talked to my supervisor about this after it happened, but I connected with a gentleman who was uh, previously charged for sexual assault of a minor. And that came up in the midst of our session. And I remember thinking when he shared that, obviously in the session, I wasn't like, wait, what? What did you say you did? (laughs) Yeah, that would be a problem. (laughs) Right. That's not really professional. But I really had to take a moment and just really take a step back and just be there for him in the way that he needed. And, you know, when I was talking earlier about understanding people. I think that's something that really helped me in the moment when I asked more about his story and just was like, hey, like what kind of led to this? When I actually had the time to understand where he was coming from, it created a lot of compassion in me as to maybe why he did those things. 
at the same time, never to justify the actions that happened, but creating that compassion. And then I had talked to my supervisor about it after. And I was like, oftentimes I don't work with individuals who have been in the situation, but she was like, you're human. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to kind of feel that feeling of somebody who's a pedophile, somebody who has been charged for sexual assault. That's normal. It's almost like not normal to be like, oh, okay, okay, nice, nice info. <laughs> you know. So I think yeah. that's a great reminder for not just myself as a clinician, but people in general. Like, yeah, we're human, and we need to keep those things in check. But obviously, in a professional way too. <laughs> Facts. I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on therapy in general? Like, in my mind, I'm like, maybe everyone should go to therapy. But do you think that's true? Like, does everyone actually need therapy? I've seen a lot of people who have that sentiment online. You know. Like everyone just needs to go to therapy at some point in their life. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah. So I will actually say that I think for a long time, I have said that. Be like, oh, I think everybody should go to therapy. I mean, <laughs> I I'm a little so, biased. <laughs> <laughs> I am a little biased as a therapist myself. But at the same time, I think more often than not, it is beneficial for people. I don't think that necessarily means that every single person needs to go to therapy. I think that like you know even when we're talking about sometimes it takes time to find somebody who's the right fit for somebody who might not be on like a bigger needs spectrum and they might just want to go in to check in it might take them a while to find and at that point they might be like oh, i don't really want to do this anymore because i don't actually have something to go in for but i think when you find the right person and it's kind of the right fit it can be really helpful it can be helpful to sit with somebody and especially somebody who's not in your personal life somebody who's very objective trained well and Sometimes hearing things back from a person, that person helping you see things in a way that you haven't can be really helpful. Even if it might not be things where it's like, oh man, this has totally changed my life. But just helping you kind of shift your thinking in some kind of way. When I when I was training for school, I remember our school was offering like therapy at the time for free. I remember. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I was like, of course, I'm going to be in the other seat. So I definitely want to experience this myself. And one of the things that my therapist did was on a scale of one to 10, she was like, how much do you need this? It's something like that, one of those questions. And I literally remember being like, I want to put zero because I just want to come because I want to experience this. So I was like, mm, I won't put zero, but I'll put one. <laughs> so I did. And I think I had like maybe eight, 10 sessions. And I can't actually really remember a lot of what I brought in. But I do remember coming out of it being like, I think it's shifted how I've seen parts of my family in some kind of way. Not to the point where it's like totally changed my entire life. But it definitely helped, you know, because I'm like talking through things externally with somebody who isn't connected to my family or to these personal issues I'm bringing in. So I definitely think it can can be helpful for people in ways they might not expect as well. Yeah. I think Amara should go to therapy is where I was going with that. <laughs> oh, wow. The next episode, we follow up. How yeah. was your experience in therapy? <laughs> no, no, no. We put in a mic in his therapy session. And mm-hmm. We listen to his childhood trauma. And then the therapist <laughs> brings up the Enneagram. And it's just all full circle. <laughs> so your sister really loves Enneagram, right? Yeah. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Only for willing to pay for it. <laughs> so what do you think that people should take away from this episode? Hmm. To be honest, I think not just therapy itself, but just in general, I think there's so much beauty in how we're created and there's so much beauty in each of our stories. So obviously in therapy, you get the chance to sit with somebody and hear their story because everybody's story is worth listening to. But on the bigger spectrum of things outside of therapy, it's really taking the chance to learn and listen and hear people's stories. I think that's 
what I'm reminded by, even in our conversation, that even for people that you don't know, or I know that even for myself, if I see somebody, I'm like, that I might not kind of vibe with, I already have these judgments about them. I'm like, oh, this is how they are. But when I actually take the time to listen to them and their story, then I think it often changes how I see them because I'm, I'm actually getting to know them for who they are. So if anything, I think it's to be reminded that people are people and people want to share those stories. And there's power in being able to share those experiences with people. And especially for the people in your own personal life that might be going through stuff. I think there's a lot of just learning what it looks like to hold space for people. You don't necessarily need to be there to tell them what to do or to be like, oh no, I need to figure out a solution for them. Just being there for them, it, that, that's enough for a lot of people already. 